you know, it's kind of dangerous if you don't know what you're doing, but it's not hard work. And because of the, you know, like, you know, the government kind of coming in and being like, oh, we need all these licensing things. They, they created a shortage of these guys, right? And prices are going up. I mean, you can see what's happening with construction costs. And so that, that's made the people that have these licenses get up there in age because you have a huge barrier to entry for young people and they get very set in their ways. Like a lot of times, like, I mean, I talked to a painter the other day who we were actually willing to pay him more money to paint houses that he generally builds, right? right? My next question to him was, you sound great. Can you email with us? And he's like, no, I like to call. And I'm like, okay, like we can get you set up with the email and teach you how to use it. He goes, no, man, I just don't do that. I go, okay, well, do you want your card back? Because this won't work for us. Jeff, uh, thank you so much for coming on. So I think I wanted to just begin this by describing how I came across you. I came across you on Twitter and specifically you were describing this one particular company called Thrive and the ticker for that company is THRY for anybody that's interested. And since you brought it up and since you've advocated for it on Twitter, or I guess just publicly, the stock has done incredibly well. And I think what's really interesting is, I mean, it's, it's a small cap stock. They do one or two very particular things. So better than me explaining it, if you could describe sort of what are the key characteristics of this company that caught your attention and how were you able to see the value in it when nobody else did? I, I came across it just like talking with people. We, we, me and one of my buddies were talking about a company called uh, Donnelly Financial, which is basically a, a paper proxy printer. And they were kind of transitioning into this digital SaaS environment for um, public companies. And so the old paper business, you know, not a very good business. I mean, we've all seen The Office and know about Dunder Mifflin. It's, you know, kind of a dying business. Right. And, but the thing is, there, there's a high growth kind of obfuscated by that, which is their SaaS business. And so we were talking and, and you know, this guy brought drive. And so we, you know, I, I dug into it because I, I found the story really interesting. And, you know, the next day I started buying shares. Um, so the, the, the shitty business that obfuscates the good one is the yellow pages, right? I mean, if you've ever been in a gas station or hotel room, you know, maybe sometimes they'll drop them off on your doorstep, have these yellow pages books. And, you know, they, uh, it costs them like a dollar and 25 cents to make one of those. But they get like nine dollars and twenty five cents or so in revenue from, them, from advertisements, and so there's a lot of leverage on. And but, but they're they're creating just a, a crazy amount of cash flow. I, I just an absurd amount actually. But it is a, a declining business. You know, it's declining in the, the low twenties. But you know, I think that the net present value of it's more than what the market was assigning to it at the time. And the other thing is that you know they did a direct listing, so they weren't able to do road shows or really talk about what was going on with the company. So, you know, when I was buying my shares, you know, I, I think my dollar cost average on the common stock, which I only have five shares up now, and we can get into that later. But, you know, I think my, my, my cost average is probably like 11 or 11.50 or something. It was just literally because no one knew about it. And if they did, the first thing they saw was yellow pages, right? And they didn't want the same thing with the debt. But I was obviously this really cool small business SaaS software. Right. And it's a, an incredible software package. I genuinely think that it is the future of small business software. And, you know, it's a scheduler. It's, it does websites, it does you know, ads, it aggregates all the data on, you know, Google and Yelp and Home Advisor and you know, they're on whatever sites. I think there's 50 sites or something that they do. 
But you can go to their investor relations page and you can hear Joe Walsh, uh, their CEO, uh, kind of pitch it. And he can do a much uh, much more interesting job than I can of, of communicating yeah. that message. Yeah. I definitely want to get into the software aspect of this business, but you just said that you only have five shares of this business. Well, right right now, right? When right. I started right. out, I had a lot more. And so I, I started buying shares. And you know, for me, I, I got a pretty healthy amount. And you can see what happened with the stock. It obviously right. very well. And at some point in there, probably in December, some point at some point, because I think I started buying my shares around Thanksgiving. You know, I figured out that there were these warrants that, mm-hmm. and they weren't publicly traded, right? So mm-hmm. I got a list of the warrant holders from the company. You know, under Delaware law, I'm entitled to get that list of the shareholder. And so mm-hmm. I started calling up and, and doing mailings to the warrant holders, and they had received these warrants as part of the Dex Media bankruptcy. And I'm like, hey, you may have these things that you think are worthless. I think they might be worth something. I was really transparent with them. I was like, you know, I think that this could do very well, but there is risk in it. And at the time, you know, the stock was trading in the teens. So I was able to get a whole lot of warrants that way. And then, you know, through my broker, we did some other transactions and stuff with some big warrant holes. So yeah, so my, my play on it right now is the warrants. And the way I wound up with the five shares of stock was because I wanted to do a test run of the warrant conversion into the stock. So I converted 10 warrants into five shares of stock just to understand the process because right. you know, these things, you know, they, they uh, expire in um, August of 2023. And, you know, if this continues doing well, I, I don't want to be just kind of going around in the dark, not knowing what I'm doing. There's potentially a large sum of money going on. So I wanted to understand that process now. Right. When I first heard about this process of reaching, like cold mailing certain warrant holders, getting information from them, negotiating with them, buying their warrants, and then sort of becoming invested in this business in a you know sort of very indirect way, I was like, the fact that such a thing even exists is is sort of really cool. I guess you know the common sort of criticism of people that invest or investors in small caps and focusing their time on small caps is that the risk is really just not worth the benefit. What do you have to say about that? I mean, I'm sure there's some way that you could throw like a Kelly criterion or something on what I'm doing, right? I'm not smart enough to do that, but you know, I'm just, you know, I was kind of thinking, okay, like, I, I mean, I basically created the warrants for free because of the 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 performance of the stock, so that was kind of interesting. So I, I felt like I was kind of playing with house money a little bit, but you know, generally speaking, I think that people saying small cap stocks, and to me, this isn't really that small of a company. I mean, at this point, it's you know, I think a 1.1 billion dollar market cap. That's um, true. Yeah. You know, 1.8, 1.9 billion enterprise value. At the time, though, it was, you know, probably half a billion or something like that in market cap, and maybe 1.2 in EV. But I think that people just kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, on some of these micro caps, that's what creates the opportunity. And if you're not a hedge fund working with a billion dollars or, you know, even a couple hundred million, you know, and, and you know, you're just a regular person, you can take advantage of those kind of anomalies in the market where you have some asymmetric upside. Sure. I mean, you know, I, you know, Donnelly Financial is an interesting example of that where hedge funds don't want it. So, you know, you know, for a guy I know that I really like a lot, Richard Sosa, you know, I mean, he, he, he will happily pick up their scraps with Donnelly and, you know, ACFN, that's another one that's, you know, probably got a, you know, $40 million market cap. I own a a little bit of it, but that's a really interesting little business that is a legit business, has a fantastic uh, CEO uh, and chairman. And I think there's going to be really interesting things coming, but it's just not the size that larger firms can invest in. So they get these small valuations and as they grow, more people start paying attention and, and buying in, you know, and you have a constricted demand. So, you know, the, the price generally 
reflects that. Right. Same thing with you know when they, things uplist, you know, you know, cost of capital goes down and that's a good stuff. And then people wind up liking a stock at say fifty dollars that they didn't like at ten. You know, I, I think that Rick's, you know, the strip club operator, that's right, a, a fantastic right, right. example. I think people like that stock a lot more at fifty dollars than they did when a lot of people I know were buying in in the teens. Right. Mm. And mm. it's it, that's really counterintuitive because what was the less risky bet? Was it buying it at 50 or was it buying it at 15? I, I, you know, granted, you know, at 15 COVID, we thought Amazon packages were going to kill us at the time. Right. Right, um, right. So maybe there was more risk then, but from a price to value perspective, it doesn't seem like there was. So mm. I think that's why a lot of that, that, that happens. And I think that there's asymmetrical upside for that, especially if you're working with small amounts of capital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I definitely am. <laughs> I definitely am working with small batch capital. And I think, I think the other, the other thing I've been thinking about is, I actually the other day I watched this movie Trading Places. It's like one of my favorite yeah. uh, Wall Street Wall Street movies. And in the in the movie, there's a scene when I think Eddie Murphy basically enters the, the trading floor, and the guy that's showing him around is basically like, "This is the last bastion of capitalism in America." And this is you know the '80s. Mm-hmm. Twenty five years later, we're at this point where. Stock trading, trading stocks and investing in stocks has become so popular and information has become so easily accessible and it, you know anybody can access it and turn it into intelligence and all these analysts are covering all these big companies. The only real companies that are not being covered like that is the smaller companies. And I, I, I think this is what you're talking about, the asymmetrical arbitrage here. It's like almost like an information arbitrage. If somebody's willing to do the legwork, reach out to investor relations and find that information. And I think that's what's, what I'm really trying to get to is that uh, you and others have noticed actively reach out to investor relations at these companies that aren't that well publicized and you manage to get information, whether that's like uh, notes in the financial statements, or I, I mean, you're really like digging for gold and then you, and then you end up finding it. So if, if you could just speak a little bit about your approach there, you know, any tips you have for people that are maybe new to the space and how you sort of see information collection as part of your strategy. Yeah. So I, I think the first thing is don't be afraid to reach out to people. You know, people, they, they like to talk to people. You know, I mean, we're, we're social creatures, right? And especially if you're you're asking them questions about something that they spend a lot of their time doing, you know, you know, and always approach this from the, the, the side of, you know, you don't want anything material. It's non-public, right? That is the last thing that you ever want to get. Because right. if you do, then you can't make money on this. Well, if, I mean, you could, but you would probably wind up going to jail, which no one wants, right? Right. So if you do wind up with that information, I would highly suggest you. But, you know, there, there's a really good book called Sleuth. And I'm sure it's on Amazon, maybe in iBooks or something like that. But I, I read that when I was probably, I don't know, 22 or something, maybe 20. I don't know. And it just really resonated with me. And it's almost like a treasure that, that, that you're doing with this stuff, you know, um, especially when you're reading, you know, the the financial documents of the company, like a 10K or a 10Q or a K or an S1 or, you know, Throw them whatever other abbreviations you want, but th- there's a lot of information in there that you can get, and that you'll you'll start to notice patterns and things there that you should start asking questions about, right? And a lot of people don't read them, and it seems like the people that do read those filings automatically assume that it doesn't do you much good because everybody else that they know is reading it, right? So they're thinking the market should be efficient, and yeah, that, that's fair. But I think there, that there's a, a little bit of an art in the interpretation of that, you know, looking at the incentive structure of the company, I think is very important. You know, Thrive, one of the things I really like about the Warrens is that if you look at the options for the executives, a very significant amount of them are going to be exercised 
in the year that surrounds so six months on each side of that Warren's exercise, right? So the insiders are very, very incentivized from a personal net worth perspective to have the stock up high in, in August of 2023. So, you know, just finding stuff like that in the proxy statement, right? And you don't have to read the whole thing. You can start noticing, okay, this is where the information is. And then you can kind of fill in some of the gaps. That's something. You know, looking at the subsequent events in a 10Q, um, that's something valuable. For example, of the last Thrive one, and this is something that no data aggregator is going to have. So if you're looking at the financials of this company on Morningstar or Google or Yahoo Finance or whatever you use uh, until I can out of it, there, the amount of cash is not going to be correct on there, right? Because you're looking at financial statements for March, but from the end of March, but in there, you'll see that on April 30th or so, somebody exercised a million warrants, which injected the company with something like 400 or $14 million. Right. So the company actually has, you know, a lot more cash on their balance sheet than everyone thinks, or they use it to pay down their debt. So much more well-capitalized company. So, you know, you can talk to investor relations about that and say, hey, you know, can you give any color? Right. Because at the end of the day, you're looking at documents that are going to take you maybe an hour or two to get through. But they're trying to sum up the work of several thousand people that they've been working on, you know, anywhere from, you know, 40 to 80 hours a week for the past year. There's such an information asymmetry. They, they can give clarity on that, certainly. Right. So don't be afraid to reach out to people. Network. I mean, talk to people on Twitter. You know, I mean, that's how you know them. Right, exactly. No, so so for context, just, just so I understand myself, the 10Q you're saying has a section on the subsequent events, which is events that have occurred since the financial statements were released, yeah. but were not included in the financial statements. And, and then by looking- relatively material. Got to say that again, sir? Generally, they have to be relatively material. So for example, like, you know, if they've accelerated their debt pay down by like a million bucks, that's that's not going to matter. But exercising of you know say ten, you know probably ten percent of the warrants that were out there, they put fifteen, fourteen or fifteen million dollars into the company. That's kind of a big deal. So they've got to disclose that. Right. Right. That's very cool. That's uh yeah. It's like these are the things you learn in class, and then you you know, learn in school or something. And you're like, how do I apply this to make myself money? So this is okay. This is really interesting. Okay, last trading question. I really want to get into the software aspect of this uh, yeah. aspect of Thrive and just generally running a small business or a small to medium sized business. You know, platforms like Robinhood now, I guess to an extent, eTrade and TD Ameritrade, they've, they've created zero fee trading, and what I've seen that's really interesting in Robinhood is they really publicize the small to medium cap businesses because they tend to fluctuate a lot on an intraday basis. And so you'll see like these small cap businesses that go up like 40, 50% or, you know, hundred percent in a day. And that automatically attracts, it's like, you know, the fleas to a honey or like bears to a honey or whatever. And a lot of people jump into it. In fact, they end up making some of these stocks almost more liquid. Um, as somebody that invests in some of these types of companies and things like that, is this sort of good for you or bad for you? Or how do you see this does this even affect your thinking at all or where do you where do you stand on that yeah i don't know if it's necessarily good or bad i mean i think that more people looking at information in the marketplace generally makes a market more efficient that's one of the reasons that i think it's important to talk about information that may be misunderstood right is because having efficiently valued markets that's a good thing right and in my mind this is just going to make things more volatile right so you know, you may have more room on the upside, you may have more room on the downside with risk exposure, right? But that can also create opportunities where, again, the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. And I think you've been seeing that a little bit with market fluctuations, with, you know, ETFs being just the thing that everybody starts investing in, right? You know, and, and when the animal spirits come out, it can make for there to be 
very broad overreactions. A good example of that in you know March and April of last year when, when COVID hit, the last thing that you wanted to be in was real estate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, everyone was convinced that real estate was going to go down. And in hindsight, that it's obviously not what happened. I mean, it's kind of commercial, but certainly not residential. And there was this little company called Sacum Capital, right? And their common stock was was very compelling. I mean, I, I was buying probably a dollar twenty a share, and I averaged up on it. My cost average may have been two bucks. I, I can't really remember, but they were they were a REIT that was in a lot of these indexes, right? And as the indexes were selling off from where they were such a small company, their stock was beaten down to you know half of book value, or so. Actually, maybe a quarter of book value. It was something absurd like that. They had a pretty good uh, capital structure on their balance sheet. Like they didn't have like bank debt, really, like Manhattan Bridge Capital does. I really dislike how their bank debt bank debt is structured. But Sacum Capital had issued bonds, right? They were also traded, mm-hmm. and so you could buy these baby bonds that were the first thing in the capital structure for you know twelve dollars on a twenty-five par, and so your yield on that was something like fourteen or fifteen percent, right? And these were hard money loans on, on, on like residential properties, right? And so there was very little risk in them unless, you know, COVID actually killed all of us and everybody was going to go bankrupt, at which point it was like, well, just tear up your paper because nothing else really matters, you know? Right. So, right. you know, the, these ETFs with these large swings, right, partly because of Robinhood investors going out of the REITs and stuff, you know, created an opportunity there, right? So... Mm-hmm. You know, you can look at the price. They've, they've obviously recovered. In fact, they've issued hundreds of millions of dollars more of these bonds since then at attractive prices. So I think that it's just, it's not necessarily good nor bad. It's just different. And you need to be able to adjust, you know, the same way with, you know, how, you know, you know, community banks used to go public, you know, if they were mutuals and stuff, you know, the demutualization process and stuff. Like that's not really much of a play anymore. Whereas it used to happen all the time in the 80s. And, you know, it's just the market changed. So just be nimble with that. You know, and, and it's just kind of fascinating to see how things go in and out. Yeah, I mean, there, you know, there's multiple examples of that. Another good example of why it's some, there's some interesting opportunities is, you know, Tile Shop, right? That was a company that was traded on the NASDAQ and the company delisted and it totally tanked the shares, right? I mean, you can you can pull up that chart from late 2019 and see what happened to the share price. It absolutely created. The company actually got sued over the, de- the delisting. And so from where a lot of people weren't able to buy the stock anymore, they could only sell it. Right. And then there were all these funds that were forced sellers of it. So it created an opportunity with, with, with some of these situations that you're describing. And so ironically, now that they have relisted and the stock's, you know, gone up considerably. But I mean, it, it got down to like 50 cents a share during COVID, which was frankly stupid. You, there was, you could not have leased all the stores and put the tile on the floors for what you could buy that company for in. March and April of last year. It just couldn't have happened. And uh, I think part of that was because of the delisting and, and kind of the, the, the structure that Robinhood and, and some of these other firms have set up, especially with, with the way we're indexing now. Right, right. Dang, that's uh, super interesting. So basically, you have these laggards that very casually drop to the bottom of the NASDAQ and then they eventually delist. And then all these hedge funds, uh, they have whatever bylaws and rules and things like that where they cannot buy over the counter or whatever. And then boom, they sell out tanks, somebody like, you know, capitalist comes in, somebody that sees the opportunity buys in and does really well. That's sick. I, I definitely wanted to go back to a comment you made earlier where you were saying that Thrive is the future of software for SMBs. Just explain that more. Well, it may not, be, but I, I happen okay. to think it is. 
I, sure. I'm placing a bet on that. And, and, you know, from where I own the wards, I'm incentivizing. So I, I may be biased. Here. But having seen the software and, you know, seen the uses of it with, with people, I, I'm fairly confident. And they've got a great sales team and how they can onboard people from the Yellow Pages business where they already have these relationships. I, I think that's going to help them grow. But, you know, I think one of the problems with small business is that <clears throat> you are either so inefficient that you can't be efficient because you can't afford to be, or you're trying to be so efficient with certain things that you're creating inefficiency, right? You know, for example, like the, you know, if, if you got an, an electrician, right, who's got a bunch of different journey, you know, sometimes he has to go out to the job site, you know, and that's, you know, generally in Kentucky, you know, $80 an hour, you know, it's good money for Kentucky. You know, and I'm sure in New York, it's, you know, multiples of that. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times you, you have these guys that, wind up doing administrative tasks, right? That you could generally hire out for a lot less money than $85 an hour. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, they don't have time to, to really think about stuff. And I think the best thing that they could ever do would be to just kind of walk away from things for maybe a week and just make a decision, right? I need to use XYZ software. Just pick one of them. It doesn't matter. It could be Jobber. It could be Thrive. It could you know, be, you know, whatever else. It doesn't really matter. Just pick one of them and that'll make your life easier, right? Now, I, I think you should use Thrive because it, it, it's frankly got the most robust offerings, right? And it's very easy to use, especially if you are time-conscious, right? It's very easy to roll out. I, I, I like to refer to it as boomer proof. So, you know, it, it's just a good software that can help scale a business, you know? I mean, people think that, oh, I need a website. And then they wind up spending weeks trying to figure out this website and it winds up being a piece of shit because they don't know what mm-hmm. they do. Well, you yeah. know what, for like, you know, hundred bucks a month or something, Thrive can take care of that for you. And they can make your website wonderful for you mm-hmm. um, very quickly. And it, it gets all the information consistent on every single website. You know, it helps you with customer reviews. It, it just helps you in so many different ways. I mean, even billing, you know, every week with my business, you know, where we're paying contractors, I probably mail out maybe 15 checks a week. But there's probably a good six contractors that need to come to my house to pick up their checks, right? And that's because they're trying to make payroll. And we've been trying to be like, guys, you need to get caught up enough to where you don't have to do this. Because what happens is that master, like electrician or plumber, who should be billing 80 bucks an hour, he's billing $0 an hour to go off the job site. His guys get more inefficient because the boss abandoned there. Come to my house, pick up the check, go to my bank to cash it, go back to the job site or to his bank to put the money in, and he has to write his checks for payroll and all that. I mean, he's just killed three hours of his time for something that could have been done for free, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's a problem that a lot of these guys have. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Thrive can take care of that. I mean, they, they've got Thrive Pay. It's a, it's a low-fee processing platform for payments that I don't think the market is assigning any value to right now. But, you know, you can do an ACH transfer. I think the cap on the fee is $10. You know, you could, you could transfer 50,000 bucks. It cost you 10 bucks and money will be in your account that day or the next day. That's something that would really help a lot of small businesses just get more efficient. And there's also a paper trail. I can't tell you how many times in the past year we've had contractors talk to us and my controller had to pull every single check that we had written to them. And, you know, we can do that because we've got co-construct and QuickBooks talking. It's the click of a button, you know, real quick. And we just go, here's your sheet, you know? And so, um, yeah, yeah, they don't, they're not set to do that. Yeah. 
it, it definitely sounds like you're 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 sort of the like an early adopter of some you know of some sort of software for SMBs. When you look at other SMB operators, do you think the reason they don't adopt new technologies? Do you think that's a psychological reason? Like they're almost like, no, I don't see value in it. I don't think I want to either. Maybe it's a learning curve, and they're like, I don't want to learn it. Or is it a financial reason? And they're like, it's going to end up being too expensive. It's going to be month over month, like you were saying, it's a hundred dollars for this, it's fifty dollars for this. And then there's a fee every time I, I get a payment process. What's what's stopping them from just really diving into these new technologies? I think it's mostly psychological, and I think that any reason they come up with is just a way to try to rationalize the decision they've already made. People get uncomfortable with new things, especially if they're older, right? I mean, if you're a master electrician or a master plumber, or a master HVAC person, you're generally older, right? Because you know, I don't know about other states, but I know in Kentucky that process. I mean, you can become a doctor in less time than it would take you to become a licensed like HVAC contractor. Interesting. Like truly licensed. Everyone says that they got their journeyman, right? That takes two years to get. They say they're licensed. Yeah, you technically have a journeyman license, but that doesn't mean shit. You can't actually install stuff unless some master plumber or HVAC guy will sign off on the work that you did. And it takes a lot of time and like thought to do that, which that says something about the construction costs, right? I mean, it's 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 very much a governmental problem because you know, like the, the electrical license, licensing test, right? When my, when my uncle took it, he was supposed to design electrical service for like a 250 unit trailer park, right? And he's like, I don't even know why the hell I'm having to do this. He's like, the most I ever want to do is swap out panels at a house, right? Which like anyone can do. I mean, I literally, if you and I would FaceTime, I could walk you through the process for doing that, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, kind of dangerous if you don't know what you're doing, but it's not hard work. And because of the, you know, like, you know, the government kind of coming in and being like, oh, we need all these licensing things. They, they've created a shortage of these guys, right? And prices are going up. I mean, you can see what's happening with construction costs. And so that, that's made the people that have these licenses get up there in age because you have a huge barrier to entry for younger people and they get very set in their ways. Like a lot of times, like, I mean, I talked to a painter the other day who we were actually willing to pay him more money to paint houses than he generally builds, right? right? My next question to him was, you sound great. Can you email with us? And he's like, no, I like to call. And I'm like, okay, like we can get you set up with the email and teach you how to use it. He goes, no, man, I just don't do that. I go, okay, well, do you want your card back? Because this won't work for us. And he said, okay, and he took his card back. He literally threw away tens of thousands of dollars in business over the next six months because he wouldn't email. Mm-hmm. And it was, I think that's just a psychological thing. You know, you get set in your ways and you think, oh, I've been plumbing for 35 years. I don't need that. Right. Do you think the onus on changing the behavior of these sort of old school small business owners, is, does the onus fall on them or does the onus also to an extent fall on the companies themselves, like the software businesses? Like they need to do a better job of, sort of matriculating into the culture and changing people's behaviors and re-educating them and explaining to them, here's the value add. Like like you're saying, here, you use this software and you will literally make X amount, X thousands of amounts of dollars more this year. I, I feel like it just seems like such an obvious thing. Like if I was running a business, why wouldn't I go out there door to door and be like, look, you need to do this. And even if it, it costs me something upfront, it'd pay me out, it pay out much like, or I get like a customer for 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 the rest of the for the rest of their life or whatever. So why why isn't that happening? 
Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of turn this question back on you. What's your background? Okay. So my background, I'm actually a student right now. I'm a graduate student, but up until recently, I was working as an accountant. I'm a CPA. Okay. Right. And and I asked that for the viewers. Like I obviously I'm an accountant, but um, you work with numbers all the time, right? You, you That's know? true. Yeah. So you you inherently know this, right? Right. Other people, there, there's in, in a lot of people they they'll know it. If you actually, I, I mean, hell, I have a, a spreadsheet that I set up actually explaining the amount of time that somebody wastes by coming to pick up a check from my house, and the amount of money it costs in the year. If you're billing eighty bucks an hour. It's going to cost you ten thousand dollars a year to come to my house and pick up that check. Mm-hmm. Just trips to Home Depot, like our software is set up, we can totally save the contractors from ever having to go to Home Depot for anything if they just do it right. Sure. It'll save them hundreds of hours a year, right? And right. literally, they would make another twenty five thousand dollars. But you know what? A lot of them still do go to Home Depot because it's just what they're doing. Knowing something and feeling it, right, are two different things. Right. Okay. And I think okay. That, that that's a lot of it. I think what the small business software space will say is we need to explain this to them and show it to them. And yeah, that's a fair point. I think you're going to get people signed up for the software by doing that. Right. But you're also going to have a lot of churn because people are going to wind up not using. It. I mean, I know an HVAC contractor that was trying to uh, switch from Jobber to Thrive. And he got frustrated and said he was going to cancel Thrive because they couldn't dump enough of his contacts from Jobber into Thrive, that it was limited. And he just totally misunderstood the email that, that Thrive sent him. They could actually do it. He just didn't understand it. And so he was like, oh, shit, I'm just going to, I'm sick of this. So ultimately, I, I don't think that the onus is on either party. I think it's just going to happen naturally, right? I mean, what you saw with corporations with HubSpot and Salesforce over the past 10 years, they're the first adopters, right? And the small business is going to kind of come in behind them, right? Ultimately, I, I think what's going to happen is all the boomers that have these businesses are going to die off and they're going to be replaced with, you know, millennials and, and, and Gen X and Gen Z or whoever that are going to just naturally be more software based for everything because, you know, you know, I mean, I was, you know, I don't know how I was 23 when I got my first like real Android smartphone, right? I got the first one, the HTC one or whatever it was that came out. Mm-hmm. And you know, so I was able to adopt that. But you know, if you got that phone when you were 40, it's going to be a lot harder to understand how to use that, right? And so think about like my nephew, who one of my favorite memories of is we were driving to a place to eat. He had his mom's iPad and he was probably two holding it. And he saw a picture and it, the screen wasn't locked. So he was flipping it from portrait to landscape mode, just watching the, the, the screen rotate. You know, and the picture changed. And he did that for five minutes. It was fascinating mm-hmm. to watch. You could see him learning. And mm-hmm. so he's going to be a lot more apt to use that software, say, than his dad, right? Sure. sure. It's just more intuitive. So, yeah, I mean, literally, I think it's just a generational thing where people will die off and eventually accept it. I'm sure, you know, and, and kind of as a corollary, you know, I'm sure that there were people who, when indoor plumbing came about, you know, was was adopted in, you know, say in Eastern Kentucky in the early 1900s, right? I'm sure that there were people that still were saying, you know what, that indoor plumbing, that's great for you. It's just kind of gross that you're willing to take a shit next to your bedroom, though. I'm good going out to my latrine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I see what you say. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like the wheels. I like to ride horses, sort of. I mean, you, you, can, make, you, can, make, you can make any sort of compromise. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah. yeah. And those people would have said, I can feel what the horse is thinking. This machine, yeah. it can do whatever. I've seen these things right. blow up. Hell, you right. can have that with, the, with electric cars. You know, I mean, people, you know, every time a Tesla catches on fire, 
you know, which almost never happens. They're like, oh, Tesla's a fraud. It's, you know, blah, 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 this, 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 this electric technology, this is stupid. When, you know, who cares about a car fire every once in a while? They happen. And ultimately, right. Teslas are a hell of a lot safer, safer than, a, you know, an internal combustion engine car. Tons. Right. This right. is crazy. People, people are always scared to death of change. And it's, it's sad for society. Right. Yeah, I, I think you make a great point. I think this idea that the status quo of human behavior is you need a, we're almost always looking for a reason not to adapt and not to change. And the second we get any reason that resembles something that, you know, uh, could apply, we, we just uh, take, you know, go off with it and take advantage of it. Yeah. The reason I keep drilling the, uh, the this, this aspect that you're saying, which is that people are not willing to change. I wonder, is this whatever it is that you're describing, has that been baked into the total addressable market numbers in HubSpot's thinking or in the analysts' thinking when they uh, value a company like HubSpot? They must say that you know HubSpot's market is whatever this large if they have X percent of it. But are they considering the fact that generation over generation, we're going to unlock this entirely new tech-savvy millennial business owner that's going to inherit their dad or granddad's business? What I do know, though, is you can see the results of, say, service pipe. Right, which Service Titan is competing for a very, very different customer than, than Thrive. But Godel, which is a very large HVC firm out in like Nevada, it's multi-state, but they're a very fascinating HVC firm. Go check one of their ads and you know, see their 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 current president and CEO talk about what service Titan did for them. It's amazing. But I cannot imagine the cultural shift that he had to do with the company to actually implement that. But he was able to, to hugely grow the business because of service type and because they, they probably learned how to use it effectively. But I would be willing to bet they, he had to fire a lot of his installers because one thing I've noticed is like in business, whenever you implement like a new system like this, it's oftentimes just easier to fire everyone and start over than it is to try to convert the people that, that were on the old system. Here's a good example of that. See, my girlfriend, she works at, at a hospital here in town. And they changed the software system that the, so that the, that the hospital used. And there was a revolt on, on her floor with like the nursing staff. There were probably five, five uh, nurses that quit because they would rather quit than learn how to use the software system that was actually easier for them to use, right? But they quit. And then ultimately, they went and got a job at a different hospital where they had to learn some different software. So the end result was the exact same. They were still having to learn a new software. But they just were like, no, I'm not going to do it here. Right. Um, right. So there, there can be a cultural shift. And, you know, human behavior, you get locked into a certain setup. And, you know, I, I think when you also can find employees that value getting more efficient all the time, you, you know, you and, and are okay with some change, as long as they understand you're not changing just to change, you're changing because there's an actual purpose. You need to mm -hmm. really cling to those people and and, mm -hmm. and, and, and value them because they're, they're, they're harder to come by than, than, than you would think. Mm -hmm. Okay. So beyond, beyond all this that we've just talked about, is there anything else that you think the, the hub spots of the world, the thrives of the world that they're not understanding about their customers? Is there something that they really just don't understand that you wish they did? I don't know. You know, there, there's a whole lot of people working in those companies, you know, I, and their internal thinking may be different than, you know, kind of their, 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 their public thinking too. I, I, there, there's such an information asymmetry on what I think they think versus what they think and what other people think they think. I, I just, you know, I, okay, I'm that's fair. postulate on that. That's fair. Okay. That's fair. Okay. So I, I did want to touch on the real estate. What exactly do you do in real estate? That's sort of your nine to five, right? So we buy like a handful of houses that are 
frankly, shitholes fall down generally. You know, it, it's kind of funny. I, I said that once and, you know, community activists got kind of really angry with me because she was like, you know, these are people's homes in their neighborhoods. And I was like, well, what do you think I should call them? Because when I walk into these places, they're literally ready to fall down. There's mm-hmm. no plumbing and there's a hole in the roof, you know, mm-hmm. and there's no drywall anywhere. Like they're literally condemned. So what should I call them? And she kind of just shut up and walked on. Right. But I, I cannot express that these places are literally falling down in, in, in most of the, the cases. So we come in, you know, we get building permits and all that, and we literally reconstruct them while they're still standing. And, you know, the way that the, the particular... You, you totally you totally reconstruct them? You tear them down and... No, no, no. We, we, we do it while they're still standing. So it's like oh, we take out a wall, put a wall back, right? And kind of go around the house and do that. Um, sometimes it would actually probably have been smarter to just tear the whole thing down. Mm-hmm. And start over, but that's just not what we do. We we, we don't do teardowns. I've maybe seen three seen three houses where I actually thought they needed to be torn down. But but part that's probably more so on me. It's that's it's more of a that that may not necessarily be an economic decision on my part. Part of it's just like no, there, there's good stuff here. We need to use it. Um, so yeah, so so we kind of rebuild them while they're still standing. You know, bring them up to all new codes. You know, we we you know I, I feel like we do a. a a nicer job than most working you know, I mean, we use hardwood, you know, nail down bamboo flooring, you know, we put tile and we put, you know, dovetailed solid wood cabinets and butcher block countertops, stainless steel appliances, you know, we insulate the hell out of houses, you know, we use spray foam almost everywhere, you know, we use, we, we try to get our, our ceiling insulation value to R50, right, which code is R38, you know, we, we try to do a lot of stuff like that, tankless hot water Lots of things like that, and then we ultimately keep them as as rentals indefinitely. Okay, it's kind of the play. No, no, no. Uh, sort of term date in the future, like seven, eight years. Sell it, just keep it indefinitely. Rent it out, increase rents year over year, and it's like a nice ROI in the long term. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, everything's out next at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, we're we're fine holding on to stuff. I mean, there is an opportunity to fund that I'm involved with that. We'll probably have some sort of liquidity event or something. Nice. Okay. That's in the next eight years because we started up ten, two years ago. But you know, we'll see what the underserved structure looks like then, and, and all that. I mean, you know, that, that may change. But you know, I mean, generally speaking, it's it's an indefinite hold, and a lot of that's because, like, in the market I'm in, there's a green belt. You know, there's lots of infill being encouraged, and like, literally, you cannot build. There's a service boundary. You cannot build anything outside of it. And mm. so the city officials here are wondering why the price of housing is going, you know, parabolic and mm. rents are going up and, you know, people can't afford their houses. Well, it's a government made problem. They haven't let people build in the past 20 years. So you get some really weird things where, you know, shotgun houses that are in a, what was previously viewed as, a, you know, impoverished and, you know, for the average home buyer in a desirable part of town, you know, are, are going for lots of money now. It, it, it's a truly weird market distortion that our government's created here. That seems to be the case everywhere. I mean, like I'm in California right now, Northern California. The only thing that we talk about in relation to real estate is the fact that we're not building anything new. So actually on, on that topic, like what's your take on this recent news that BlackRock and these other hedge funds are buying vast amounts of uh, residential real estate? Is that Generally, I mean, uh, yeah. I guess what, what's your take before I even try to before I try to bias you? <laughs> I mean, doing this every day, I'm I've already got my biases. I'm, I'm what, what are yours? 
I don't know what to make of it. I mean, I can't tell if it's a little overplayed because I, I was under the impression that even like six years ago, BlackRock was the largest residential landlord in America. So why is it that all of a sudden in 2021, it's become it's become like a much bigger issue? I wonder if it's been exacerbated by the fact that we don't build anything new. And so now people are really worried that they've taken the existing supply and they've just sort of cornered the markets. But even now I'm like, what percent of the residential home market do they really own? right? Like, is it even a material amount? I know they're the largest, but what does that mean? They could just, I actually do not know the exact number there. Well, it also gets down to demographics, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, if you go out to, you know, Mount Sterling, Kentucky, right? You're, they're, they don't have any desire to go out there. You know, there's no scale. They, they need to be able to, you know, Warren Buffett at the, you know, great financial crisis. He said, if he can buy, what was it? What was it called? A million or a hundred thousand single family residentials he'd write a check for right now, but he couldn't do it because he couldn't put the deal together. You know, like it, it's kind of funny because people think that you can just snap your fingers and, and, and you know, buy 10,000 houses. Like, yeah, I mean, I guess you could if you found somebody that owns 10,000 houses, but cobbling those deals together, it takes work. This is not like selling a normal business, right? If you were going to be selling, you know, a software business or a steel mill or something, there's one asset there, you know, and maybe it's some multi- you know, location place, there's 10 assets, you know, and an infrastructure people to make that happen. But for single family housing to transfer, you can't, you generally can't just transfer the LLC. At least if you're smart, you won't do that. That's actually stupid to do, right? Because you need to run title work on every single asset, right? You're literally trying to go against these um, institutions and, you know, common law that's been set up forever. How are you going to get insurance on 10,000 individual single family houses? Right? I mean, I'm sure there's a company out there that'll do it. I don't know who they are, though. I know every time we buy a house, we, you know, we have an automation in, in, a, in one of our softwares called Monday. Actually, it's mm-hmm. public and we, you know, we, we get insurance. I mean, and the utilities, right? They, they change drastically from municipality to municipality, right? In Lexington, right? We have a merged county government. Right with the city, right? It's in mm-hmm. you know in Kentucky, we're one of the I think the, the two counties that are like that. So we've got one water plant, we've got one you know electric place, one gas place. But if you go two counties out to Anderson County, right? Depending on where you live, you might have city water, you might have private water, you might have Delta gas, you might have AU, you may you know. And then if you go to Frankfurt, then there's a plant board you've got to deal with for a lot of stuff where you do have electrical service from Kentucky Utilities, but it goes through the local plant board. Right. So you have to know all these like very geographic, geographically based things. Right. In, in Kentucky, we've got 120 counties. Right. And then however many cities on top of that. So it, it changes even more drastically. Right. In, in a place like Kentucky. So that makes it real harder. So, you know, BlackRock and these guys, you know, they're, they're probably focused on, you know, population centers. So like Las Vegas, someplace in Florida, I don't know. I mean, Orlando, Miami and stuff. But I mean, to my knowledge, they haven't really started doing anything in, in Lexington, which is the second biggest city in Kentucky. I don't, I don't know, nor do I care if they're doing it in Louisville. But I would think that they would go to Louisville before Lexington, and then you know, I think that the play will be, you know, to you know, for smaller landlords. And, you know, ultimately, I think that the play with a lot of real estate is to basically be an aggregator of this stuff and then sell to a public company at some point, like BlackRock. That may be the exit for a lot of people. Oh, um, interesting. Okay. But you know, I mean, you can see that with like. Well, any industry that's, that's highly fragmented, you know, there's always an acquirer right. that goes into it. 
you know, in Peter Lynch's book, One Up on Wall Street, I think he talked about a funeral home operator that did that, you know, mm-hmm. highly fragmented industry, and then they just kept buying them out. You know, you're starting to see that with HVAC businesses. And then, you know, self-storage is doing that a little bit. And, you know, I, I think that there's some car dealerships that are doing that. Pawn shops, you know, there was a guy here that put together a chain of 15 pawn shops and he sold it the first cash, you know, which was brilliant, right? Because if he was sold to a private investor here, he might've got like, you know, or he wouldn't have even gotten a multiple of EBITDA, right? He would have gotten like, here's the value of your inventory, and then I'll give you three months worth of pawn interest, right? Right, right. right. But when he goes to first cash, he can all of a sudden sell it for, you know, five times EBITDA or something. And then, you know, maybe he gets some stock on top of that, maybe some options for their performance based. And it's highly accretive for the the, the pawn shop, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think you maybe want to see that with, with real estate, but I mean, my market, I'm not too worried about BlackRock. And, and I mean, if they do come in here, I think it would be a long time for now when they can actually get scale. I mean, that's why you do multifamily and commercial. Right? That's why all of the, the big replays are commercial and multifamily because you can deploy 100 million bucks. Like, boom. You know, right. you, right. you can't do that with single family. Right. Yeah. No, the, 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 the thing, the, the sort of the, Business acquisition framework that you just described is exactly how it works in the accounting business. You know, accounting firms nab up a bunch of small clients here and there, tax clients, audit clients, and then a bigger firm, not necessarily like a big four, but like a, like a regional firm will come and acquire them. And then, yeah, it's like inbuilt distribution, inbuilt clients. It's really, I, I've never, I've never sort of broken it up and thought about it, you know, in real estate and things like that. That's really interesting. So I did want to get to like a fan service question. As you look out into the next year or two years or three years, what sector are you maybe spending a lot of time looking at in terms of the stock market? And then specifically, if you could name, you know, one or two stocks that you're ex- extremely uh, excited about, you know, aside from Thrive, if there's, <laughs> there's anyth- anything other than... Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you, you you gave that caveat to it because Thrive is by far my largest holding. Right. If anyone follows me on Twitter, they'll know I'm, I'm yeah. like the Thrive. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 I know. Yeah. So right now... I, I just bought some warrants on, I guess, Friday of, of the ticker symbols Lego, LEG. And that's an interesting steel SPAC. I think the warrants have compelling upside. You know, I don't know what's going to happen with steel, right? It's 1700 or something right now for flat roll, um, which is, you know, three times what it was, you know, probably a year ago. I'm not smart enough to understand the steel market, but I do think the warrants are compelling. You know, they have got, they've got a limited upside, so you've got to look at that. But I think that's an interesting one, you know, especially if steel stays elevated. I mean, that'll just be a slam dunk. But I've been I've been looking a lot at warrants lately. I own some Gedeker warrants. You know, it, it seems like there's two sides on this where like the Wall Street bets and, you know, Twitter bots and whatever seem to think this is an amazing company and stuff. And you got these other people who are like, no, this company is shit. It's, you know, the old management team was awful and they diluted shareholders and they're not going to hit their numbers. And I'm kind of in the middle where I'm like, Guys, I I don't know. Like, I really don't know which way this could go. I'd be kind of surprised if they hit their numbers. But right, at least where I bought my warrants at, right, I was paying you know a little bit north of a dollar. I just thought it was a compelling bet, you know, sure. and sure. and maybe it'll go to zero, maybe it won't. I was really impressed that they were able to put together, you know, what was in essence after the warrants and stuff. I mean, call it like you know, quarter to a half billion dollar placement, right, for a company that originally had you know a very very small. Uh, market cap. I was really impressed they got that deal done and managed to get you know sixty, seventy million dollars in debt on it. I, I thought that was kind of interesting, but you know, I, I think that there's a lot of black and white here um, with with not only Gettiker but just a lot of other things. And people, I, I think that there's a lot more value to be put in the, the kind of the gray area, 
right? Another example of a company that I really, really like because the valuation is called Exco Resources and the ticker for that's EXCE. Its financials are not public. It's a caveat mTOR stock right now. And it was bankrupt several years ago. It was a massive bankruptcy. They had something like a billion dollars in debt forgiven. It just, it was a disaster. But right now, I think the common stock is actually really attractive because you can email Tyler at the company as soon as you buy a share, right? And give, I just gave him a screenshot of my brokerage statement, gave him, gave him that. He gave me an ac- access to their share file. And I find their financials very compelling right now. I mean, they're getting something like 80% of their, their production is natural gas, 20s oil. And, you know, you, anyone can look up what's been going on with natural gas, right? And so they do some hedging and stuff. And, and, you know, I, I think that at some point their financials will wind up being made public on the over-the-counter website. They're, you know, on the last conference call, there were probably five of us that were on there, you know, trying to gadfly them into it. And uh, they seem to be interested in that at this point. But and they why, why wouldn't they, interested. why wouldn't they publicize their financial statements? What's stopping them? Yeah. So it, it kind of goes back to like the Thrive D-list or not Thrive, the um, Tile Shop D-listing, right? Mm-hmm. It's very expensive to be a, an SEC reporting company, right? I mean. Mm-hmm. For a lot of these small micro cap companies, it makes it's crazy, right? Because your audit costs. Well, first off, getting an audit from just being an over-the-counter company that doesn't need SEC level filings to getting an SEC level filing, if you just call an auditor and say, Hey, I need a regular audit, they go, Oh, okay, yeah, we can do that. And then you say, I need one that's ready for the SEC. They go, whoa, 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 we don't know about that. And then you can't find anyone to do it. And so if you can't find anyone to do it, then you've got to go to a big firm. And they start charging you up the ass for it, right? So your audit expenses just go insane. It's such a distraction. It takes so much time to deal with the audit. And then, you know, just dealing with the SEC is not exactly fun. You know, and, and you know, putting together all these 10Ks and stuff, you know, these 100-page documents that have to be right, or, you know, you're facing penalties and all this other stuff, you know? Right, so right. they didn't want to deal with that after the bankruptcy. And Fairfax and Oak Tree and some other large, well-known firms are, are basically controlling this entity. So, it, you know, as an oil and gas play, I think that's kind of compelling because it's keeping any of this ESG stuff from mm-hmm. making them do something stupid, like mm-hmm. swap their assets really cheap or just, mm-hmm. you know, stop producing hydrocarbons. So they, when they came out of bankruptcy, they, they said that they would supply shareholders with all the information through a share file that would basically be SEC quality. They just didn't want to have to file with the SEC because of the expense and the, the time for it. But they have, I mean, you can go look at the pre-bankruptcy SEC documents and, and kind of see some of the, the assets that they had and what they were doing with their strategy, which is kind of interesting to look at. And, you know, then you can start looking through the stuff after that and see some interesting things. Um, but it was purely just a monetary thing. And so now that somebody got accused, well, they got accused about a bankruptcy, but now that somebody registered some shares and now there's some shares trading around in the market, you know, they're starting to think, oh, well, maybe we should put these on the over-the-counter site because more liquidity is always good. More information out there helps, you know, attention for the company. And it's just good for officially valuing the company. You know, it, they, you know, it, it's good for everybody. So, you know, because right now, if you've got a Robinhood account, uh, you can't buy the shares, right? Uh, because it's over-the-counter. But, you know, TD Ameritrade, my dad bought some shares and they sent him a very nasty letter being like, you know, we're going to let you do this, but we don't like that you, you bought these shares because it's caveat inventory and there's so much risk you know, we no one knows about, it, you know, and that's just wait. TD Ameritrade, the brokerage sent your dad that that. Yeah, yeah, because I told him you know, it was an interesting point. I was like, hey, dad, you should buy some of it. So he yeah, did. Yeah. And a couple yeah. weeks later, I was like, hey, did you ever do that? He's like, yeah, they did not like that I did that. 
So yeah. it's probably a matter of time before you can't buy. I mean, people have trouble buying these caveat import stocks, you know, on, on a lot of their brokerages, which creates more price inefficiency, right? And I right. think that, you know, the next five to 10 years, I think there's going to be a really interesting play where if you just email the company, you know, and you're not scared to do it to get their financials, right? But their caveat import and you're a shareholder and you're entitled by law to get them. I think that there's going to be a lot of money made where you can buy a lot of these shares, you know, especially if you have a boutique broker where you can buy these things that don't have much liquidity. And then you can kind of gadfly the company into making them public. And then all of a sudden the market has the information to actually value them appropriately with. Right. Um, you know, then that's great. I mean, in this environment, why should there be a, an oil and gas player that's trading for probably less than half of its liquidation value? Right. Yeah, it makes no sense. Yeah, it makes yeah. no sense. Like right. it's, it's dumb. You know, especially right. with natural gas being up a dollar in the past six months, something like that. So, you know, it's not something I don't know commodities, right? I don't get that. But I do know that at 350 natural gas right now, Exco certainly seems very interesting, especially because they keep delevering, right? And that's something mm -hmm. that literally no one else knows about just because they probably haven't emailed the company to get financials. So mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. interesting. Wow. I feel like, uh, yeah, you just gave me a lesson 101 in caveat MTOC. Yeah. And it sounds like, there's a triggering event that comes in the future at some point when they do publicize the, uh, their financials and then boom, not only do you have liquidity on the price, you also have whatever, far more publicity and then boom, like the stock just continues to go up. And so just to clarify, the access, the financials that you had access to by emailing them, those are not audited. Those are unaudited financials. Um, no, they, they have an audit. It's just, it, it's, it's just not like for the, an audit for the SEC, right? Got it. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. It's not. But, it's not okay. I mean, frankly, this audit would probably be very close to SEC level. I mean, sure. I, you know, it, I have the utmost. Well, I say I have the utmost faith. I have the utmost faith in 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 their financials for an oil and gas company, right? Okay. Got you. Okay. Okay. Cool. So you know, maybe to wrap up this interview, it's been fantastic. We like to wrap it up by asking a question. Well, asking this question, which is. What is something that you wish more people knew about? And it can be literally about anything. Oh, information asymmetries, right? I, I think that a lot of human interactions would be a lot better if you, you thought about information asymmetries. It seems like, you know, like for investing, right? We were talking about that with, you know, the 10Ks. You know, you're, you're getting a very quick summation of something that thousands of people have been putting their work into for the past year. Right. And mm -hmm. you're making a snap judgment on that, but also just in interpersonal relationships. I, I think you're going to see that. And this is something that, you know, I am not good at and continually try to work on. I mean, even, you know, with my girlfriend, right. Mm -hmm. You know, just assume the other person or party, right. Isn't coming from a bad place. And maybe you misinterpreted something and, and maybe, you know, what they said, they, they had seen something and, you know, said in reaction to something that didn't happen, that, that happened that you didn't know happened, right? There, there, I just think that a lot of confrontation could be avoided if everybody just kind of thought everybody was coming from a good place and tried to get more information for the background on something, right? Because uh, I, I think generally speaking, people are acting in a very, you know, rational method. It's just, it may seem irrational with the information that you have. Right. That's a, that's a great lesson. And I, I, I'm totally with you on this. Like Information asymmetry is not something I've ever really thought about because I spent all my time, at least in the context of the stock market, I spent all my time studying these big companies and 
I feel like you've basically we've with the big companies you've hit information symmetry. You don't really see this arbitrage opportunity by you know asking for this or asking for that. But I definitely want to spend more time in the future looking at these small cap companies and seeing like where can I just you know for my own curiosity, even if I don't end up investing, is like where can I email them and find out something that I just did not know before. Um, and so, yeah, I guess all that to say, thank you for coming on. Uh, I learned a lot. I hope whoever's listening to this, you know, gained something new. And yeah, thank you, Jeff. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. And by the way, the last episode with the lady that had the, the health tech and stuff conversation, I uh-huh. I love that. If if you're listening to this, give that one a a listen. Yeah. Which episode it was? I loved it. Yeah, that's the digital health episode with Simi, who is an executive director at Novartis. So she has like this great body of uh, knowledge and experience in the in that field. It won't be the last episode when yours releases. I'm sure there'll be like probably two or three episodes between hers and yours. But but yes, definitely.